Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, September 1st, 2023, and uh, broadcast to you from the Missouri Funeral Directors and Embalmers Association with our weekly webcast and podcast. As you can see, uh, I'm wearing white today, and I'm not going to do this to you, but if you if I pan down, you see I've got not only the white shirt, i got the white pants, white socks, and white shoes, because that means this is the last day of work before the Labor Day weekend, which is historic. Historically and traditionally, the last day you're supposed to be wearing white. Uh, we'll talk about that later at the end, some interesting trivia. Uh, and I'm saving that to the end so that you people who are not interested in general trivia can stop listening at that point. But the important part about this is that it is, is Labor Day weekend, which means our offices will be closed on Monday, uh, both for the Missouri Funeral Directors Association, the Missouri Funeral Trust. Uh, if you, again, as always, if you have an emergency and need someone to talk to you right away, make sure you tell our answering service that it is an emergency and that they need to page Don Otto and they will do their best to get a message to me so that I can call you back. Today is just random question day. These are questions that we've gotten in the last couple of weeks or ones that were asked specifically to me uh, while I was out talking with funeral homes. Been out this week, visited about, uh, I think, five, six funeral homes this week. Uh, in my uh, rounds that I'm doing with the pre-inspection inspections. And so this is just some interesting questions that have popped up or ones that have been reoccurring the last couple of weeks that we thought you might be interested in. The first one uh, is uh, further information on the new national pre-arranged services claims. You're going to be getting, if you're a few, if you're, if you're a member of the association, you'll be getting an email this afternoon with all of the links to the new website that you need to go to, to get information on making a national prearranged services claim if that claim was for a Lincoln based on a Lincoln memorial policy that you would have been sending to Texas. As of today, you no longer send those claims down to the Texas receivership. Those need to be done to the Missouri Insurance Guarantee Association here in Jefferson City. Now, if you, once you get to the document page, if you download the documents they have on there, you'll see that those documents are pretty much the same ones that you were sending down to Texas. And as a matter of fact, some of those documents still have the Texas receivership name and information, phone number and fax number on it. But don't send it down to Texas. They all need to go to the, uh, the fax number or the email address of the Missouri Insurance Guarantee Association. So look out for that email. It'll be coming out later this afternoon, and it'll have all the links. It'll have the official letter that came out from the Missouri Guarantee Association and all that information. One question I got uh, from our last broadcast and emails that are out on this is an interesting one. It's, where does the Missouri Insurance Guarantee Association get the money to pay these claims? Uh, they're the ones that pay these claims out. Even when you were sending it down to Texas, those claims were then being processed, and it was ultimately the Guarantee Association that was paying out those claims, even though the processing was done by the receivership in Texas. So where does the Missouri Insurance Guarantee Association get the money to pay these claims out? And the answer is from you. Every time you make an insurance policy premium on almost every insurance policy, there's a couple exceptions I'll talk about in a second, but almost every time that you make a policy premium on, on your health and life or a casualty policy, there is a tax that's built into that premium, a certain percentage 
goes to the Missouri Insurance Guarantee Association, and they have a fund that then is built up, and then that is what they use to pay claims on insurance companies that have gone insolvent, all right? Uh, in some situations, sometimes it happens that the claims are so big that they have to get more money than comes through their normal monetary stream on the, uh, the claims. And so they then put out assessments to the insurance companies that do business in Missouri that are covered by the Guarantee Association, and they have to pump more money into the guarantee fund. But ultimately, where is that money coming from? It's coming from you, everybody who has insurance policies that makes premium payments gets sent to them. The, the exception to that is there are some insurance companies that are not covered by the Missouri Insurance Guarantee Association. And that's an interesting kind of historical thing uh, for those that you might be interested in this. Life insurance, particularly as we have it in the United States today, very often started out uh, kind of as just mutual benefit societies, burial plans, the, uh, the Elks, the Eagles, uh, all the fraternal organizations, all started out by uh, when one of their members passed away, they would pass a hand. They, the person didn't have enough money for a, a funeral. They passed the hat amongst all the other members. And everybody puts in a little bit of money and they use that money to pay for their, uh, their fraternal members' burial uh, and funeral. And that then developed that, well, instead of passing the hat every time somebody dies, let's, as part of our dues, let's put in a little extra money every month as part of our dues, and we'll have a pot of money sitting over here so that when one of our members dies, we have some funds to pay for the burial. That went on for quite a while, and eventually many of those originally uh, fraternal uh, societies um, branched off and became insurance companies. And even independently of things like the Elks and the Eagles and the Moose and all that, any, independently of that, there were groups that got together for mutual uh, burial plans. They were, again, we'll pool our money, we'll put a dollar in or so a week and uh, when the time comes. Um, in many of those instances, those entities morphed into what we would consider a real insurance company today. They became they, their descendants from those uh, original benefit societies, and they're full-blown insurance companies today. They're covered by the Guarantee Association. But there are still some insurance-type companies out there that are mutual companies or fraternal companies that are not covered by the Guarantee Association. Now, just because somebody has mutual in the name or fraternal in the name does not necessarily mean they're not covered, okay, because they may have changed how they do operations, they may have changed their business structure, and they may now be part of the Guarantee Association. But if you're not sure about whether an insurance company you used is covered by the Guarantee Association, ask them. And if you can't get an answer from them or you don't know who to call, you can call the Guarantee Association up itself, and they'll tell you whether or not this company is covered by the Guarantee Association. So that's just a little historical thing there. But most companies are covered. And those premiums that you pay on those, part of that goes to fund uh, situations where one of those companies goes into receivership liquidation, is out of business and not paying claims anymore. So that's the first question that we've got this week a couple of times. Uh, interesting enough, we've been getting a lot of questions the last couple of weeks about adoptions, about step 
children, step parents, and uh, just to clarify things. Part of the problem, of course, is families don't use these terms uh, accurately all the time. Whether they, they'll call somebody a stepchild or uh, adopted child when maybe it is or isn't the case. It's really not that complicated uh, from the legal end of it. To be adopted, there has to have been a formal adoption proceeding where, boom, there's an order. The judge says you are now adopted by that. And if a person has been adopted for purposes of all the statutes that we deal with, they are just like a natural child. So when you take a look at the next of kin list and it says on the list here is an adult child, it doesn't matter whether that's a natural child or whether that was an adopted child. They have the exact same rights. A lot of times, however, people kind of consider a person to be a child, but they were never formally adopted. It might have been a man or a woman who had an infant child. The spouse is long gone, passed away, or who knows, they get remarried. And that child has been raised up by the new parent, step parent in this case, uh, and, and treated as their own child, but they never went through a formal adoption proceeding. In that case, a stepchild where there was no adoption is not the child for purposes, again, of all of our statutes and things like that, that we have to deal with. So when a family comes to you and say, you know, the person has so many kids and they were, this, they were adopted or they were stepkids, you might have to ask one or two more questions. Was there a formal adoption proceeding? Was this person actually made the parent of that child or this child was made the, you know, was adopted so that that person who passed away really was their parent? Uh, you have to be careful because families use these terms sometimes uh, inaccurately. And what they consider to be an adopted child may not have actually ever been adopted. So do watch out for that. Uh, another question that we've gotten, uh, again, interestingly enough, had like three of these in the last couple of weeks, has to do with family burial grounds. An old law, going back to 1936 in Missouri, allows a person to create a family burial ground. But to do that, you have to go through a number of steps. The property has to be deeded to the county for the purposes, the specific purposes of a family burial ground. It can be up to one acre. And if a family wants to do that, they're going to have to have a deed created. So they're probably going to have to hire an attorney to help them create that deed. Unless that property is so situated that you can easily see, you know, it's right next to the corner line of the quarter section line of the uh, book number 25, line, page 13 of the deeds of the, the property deeds of uh, the Platts of Cole County or something like that. Unless you're very lucky as to where that uh, purported or soon to be family burial grounds is, unless you get really lucky, they're probably going to have to hire a surveyor. Uh, so that they can give a legal description of that property, you know, 150 feet east of the corner section line of this, and then 25 feet north, west, whatever, so on and so forth. If you've ever looked at your own deed at your own property, you'll see usually it's a great big long paragraph that specifically des describes that property. They're going to need something like that. This is a very good thing to do if somebody wants to have a family burial ground on their farm, or if they have an old private burial ground on there that they've never deeded, this is a very good 
procedure to do in many circumstances because that then protects that because it says that that ground then is only to be used for the burial of the person who deeded it and for their descendants. And that protects it then again, if you look, if the farm gets sold someday or you lose it in bankruptcy, that really isn't part of the property that's transferred. It belongs to the county for the sole purpose of burying the members of that family. And even if that now family burial ground is completely surrounded by somebody else's property, that property owner has to allow reasonable access to that property. The one note says, uh, during normal cemetery hours. I'm not sure what normal cemetery hours are uh, these days, but but that's that's kind of the standard. Again, it's very old statutes. Many county uh, administrators or county commissions are not going to know that this is there in the law. So again, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk with the funeral home. I'd be happy to talk with the county commissioners or the county attorney or something like that. Direct them to the statute so that they can see for themselves what is required. Uh, last thing, and I think I've gotten a couple questions on this over the past few weeks because I think it was in the news in uh, one of the uh, some. In, I'm not sure it was a newspaper or a television station. Somebody had had put out a news story on this, and the question revolves around that extra one dollar that was tagged on to death certificates a few years ago. As I'm sure most of you know, uh, a couple years ago. Uh, a statute was passed that added $1 to every death certificate. So uh, it is now, you know, one extra dollar on every death certificate that you get for a family was added on. And that dollar specifically was designated to go to a fund to pay for coroner's training, additional coroner's training. That's what it was designed for. As you may or may not know, there hasn't been any money spent out of that fund since its creation. As of April 2023, and this is the last hard number that I have, there was $758,000 in that fund. That's how many extra dollars have been collected uh, from the death certificates that were put in that fund. Of course, that's April, so that it is, uh, it's grown by now. It's probably at $800,000 or, or more at this point. I don't have the exact number on that. So uh, ballpark figure, there's probably around $800,000 in that fund from all this $1. Well, Missouri has statutes that says any fund like this, and this includes boards and commissions, this uh, just about any agency that has this kind of uh, fund or a budget pot of money sitting there, it can only get so big. And after that time, that money, they call it a sweep. That money is removed and put into general revenue. Well, that's happened with the fund. I don't think it shows up. Uh, I'm not sure you can look it up yet, but the that fund has been swept to reduce it to a half million dollars, which apparently, I don't know how they figure up the calculation uh, for this fund is how much they can have in there. But whoever does that determined that a half million dollars is the most they can have in there, at least right now. Uh, so that somewhere in the neighborhood of perhaps $300,000, maybe a little bit more, is being taken out of that fund and put into general revenue. Uh, that's not a great thing, uh, in my personal opinion, because, you know, those families have been putting that dollar in. 
And the reason the families have been putting that dollar in is to pay for coroner training, but there hasn't been coroner training. Now, why why there hasn't been coroner training? Well, that's a long story. Uh, for a long time, there was no commission in place to uh, vote on what the training would be. Uh, hopefully that will get taken care of and they have a full quorum here, I think, maybe now. I'm hoping they do and uh, perhaps there will be training in the future. But as of this point, none of that money has really been spent and therefore it grew to too big of a, a pot of money and it is all being swept out. So for all those families that have paid a dollar extra for their death certificates over the past couple of years, thank you for supporting the general revenue of the state of Missouri because that's where it's going. It's not going to go for coroner training. It's going to go just in the general pot of money that pays for everything else. Well, that's the substantive part of today. So those of you that aren't interested in my little trivia for today, you can stop listening at this point. But again, where did this thing about wearing white after Labor Day come from? There's even a, a funny commercial out there where a guy's sitting there saying, I wonder why I can't wear white after Labor Day. Well, that goes more than 100 years. That's a tradition that goes back more than 100 years. Of course, wearing white in the summer makes sense because it's cooler. Benjamin Franklin was one of the first people who documented uh, experiments showing uh, that light-colored clothing reflected the heat more than dark-colored clothing. He put swatches of cloth out on the snowbank and measured how they melted or didn't melt into the snow. He's credited with one of the first people that really did a good documentation of that effect. So obviously it made sense for people to wear white when it's hot out. But where does that cutoff on Labor Day come from? Why, why did that happen? Well, a lot of people think that it's rich people that were trying to uh, put one on poor people, okay? Because we're going to wear white during the summer and the poor people can't wear white because they have dirty jobs and their clothes will be all dirty. Well, that's not correct. And if you think about it, that doesn't make sense. Because if that were the reason we're going to wear white because poor people can't wear white because they get dirty, well, you could do that all year long, okay? Uh, but it is, that is close. It really started in the late 1800s and early 1900s because not of poor people, but the growing middle class. The growing middle class around the late 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s first started having enough money available to purchase nice clothes, not just their normal working clothes, but nice clothes that because there were now companies that provide ready to wear clothes as opposed to, have, opposed to having them always custom made or made at home, they looked pretty much like the rich people's clothes. But maybe, but a lot of them could only afford one good outfit. You know, and maybe you have your workday clothes and then you have one good fancy outfit. And so by having different seasons where you wore different colors, or different styles, that meant the rich people could have three or four outfits and the middle class only had one nice outfit. And since you can only afford one nice outfit, we're going to split this up so that we can, you know, you, you can't be, you, you can't be in style all the year round. That's really, really where it kind of came down. And how that kind of got submitted into Labor Day was social media. Now, not the social media we had today, but the magazines. Uh, just like today, magazines needed, you know, just like websites now, they need have something for you to click on and for something you to read. Uh, they needed something to talk about. They needed something to, to draw interest. And they started 
promoting this idea that Labor Day is kind of the unofficial end of summer was the time to switch from wearing white to wearing dark colors. And it just caught on. So you know what? If you want to wear white after Labor Day, go right ahead. Uh, but uh, this is my this is my tradition to wear all white on the last day of work uh, for Labor Day. Uh, but you know what? As hot as it's apparently going to be next week in Jefferson City, there's a good chance I'll be wearing some white clothes then as well. Well, that's all we have for today. Again, if you have a question, uh, whether you just want me to try to help you through it or if you want me to something to discuss on our next webcast and podcast, just give us a call here at 573-635-1661. That's your, your Missouri Funeral Directors and Embalmers Association. We hope you have a great Labor Day weekend. Have fun with your families. Have fun with ever, whatever it is you need to do. And as always, over this long weekend, stay safe.